actually going to be just half of the sermon because of the length of it. I'll read the title page. and It's called A Zeal for God's House Quickened or A Sermon Preached Before the Assembly of Lords, Commons, and Divines at their Solemn Fast, July 7, 1643 in the Abbey Church at Westminster Expressing the Eminency of Zeal Requisite in Church Reformers by Oliver Bowles, pastor of Sutton in Bedfordshire. It is good to be zealously affected, always in a good thing, Galatians 4.18. The text of the sermon is John chapter 2, verse 17 which reads, And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thy house hath eaten me up. The prophet Malachi uh, prophesying concerning the Lord Christ, that he should in due time come to visit his church, sets him out as a refiner, as a purifier of silver, tells us that he should purify in special the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver, that they might offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And as an accomplishment of this prophecy, the same Lord Christ gives us a specimen in the story immediately preceding my text. By that heroical fact of his in whipping the buyers and sellers out of the temple, an evil which the priests for their, for their gain had fomented. I call it an heroical fact for that it was done by a special spirit in its kind not imitable by us, the, the which act of the Lord Jesus being carried on with an eminent and remarkable zeal and magnanimity, gave the disciples an occasion of calling this to mind. The zeal of thy house hath eaten me up. Of which his zeal we have a remarkable discovery in these particulars. First, in the weakness of the means whereby he did both attempt and effect the work, in that the persons but few in comparison, and those despicable in the eyes of the world, Christ and his disciples, not armed with any weapons that might carry dread and terror with them, at most but with a whip made of a few small cords which probably were scattered by the drovers which came thither to sell their cattle. And to some of them, with his voice only, he said to the money changers, Take these things hence. And it was done. Second, in the strength that the opposite power did hold out, which makes the encounter so much the more dangerous, as first a garrison of soldiers in Arcantonia, ready at hand to appease, as it is probable, occasional tumults. Secondly, the temper of the men's spirits with whom the business was. They were men set upon gain, the world's God. And thirdly, the great confluence of the people, it being the most solemn mart of the Passover. Behold then the greatness of Christ's zeal, when neither the weakness of the means on the one side to effect it, nor the greatness of the power on the other side to hinder it, did it all dismay him or cause him to desist from his from this attempt of reforming that so apparent an abuse of the temple 
the house of God. Learn we hence that it matters not how weak the means of church reformation is, nor how strong the opposite power is, if we can but draw Christ into the business, if we can procure him to sit as president in the assembly, if he be there, he will heal our ignorances, he will clear up all our doubts, he will guide us by the spirit of truth, he will be as a wall of brass against all our adversaries, he will work all our works for us. I do ingenuously confess that when we do consider and view the difficulty of the word, the work of, of church reformation and our weakness, who are summoned to be advisors in the work, it may amaze us. But when we look upon the Lord Almighty, the great Jehovah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, to whom nothing is too hard, who hath broken through gates of iron and bars of brass, which we could never have dreamed that they had been perviable, this again may raise up our spirits and give us hope that if we seek the Lord in his way, he will certainly be found of us. It is all one to him, whether by an army and by power, or by quickening the spirits of his, raising them above themselves, whether by a day of small things or by doing terrible things that we looked not for, he bring about his church's cause. It is nothing to him to make mountains plain. Who art thou, O great mountain? The Lord by the prophet speaks in a holy scorn of all the enemies the Jews had in rebuilding the temple and city. We accordingly, by a grant from the right honorable, the two houses of parliament, with so many of them as have been pleased to embody themselves with us, are assembled this day to afflict our souls in fasting and prayer before the Lord, that we may seek him a right way in these great and important affairs to be treated on, that he would give us such a frame of spirit, such an assistance from on high, such a clear light as may raise us above ourselves, fit us for that work whereunto we have no sufficiency as from ourselves." Thus did Ezra and the Jews, out of a conscience of their own inability, to help themselves in their passage from Babylon to Jerusalem. So we, being now upon a further progress, not from Babylon as some have unjustly slandered us, but from the, rem the remnants of Babylon to the new Jerusalem, our work is, the Lord assisting, to humble our souls before him in a more than ordinary way. Oh, that the Lord would put us into such a posture of abasement as might make both our persons and services acceptable before him. So should we not doubt, but the Lord Christ would be in the midst among us. The words read unto you are for, are for the latter part taken out of the 69th Psalm, uttered by David as a type of Christ, as appears by this application of them. Consider in the verse, first, the scripture alleged. Secondly, the means whereby it came to be alleged. For the latter, it was an act of sanctified, of a sanctified memory in the disciples calling to mind what was written, whereunto the fact done did serve as a remembrancer. Observe that conscionable reading of the Holy Scriptures shall be attended with seasonable remembrance. 
That is conscionable reading. When we take up reading the scriptures in the several reasons, several seasons which the Lord commands as an act of obedience unto him, this shall have seasonable remembering. For so is the promise of Christ. The Comforter shall bring all things to your remembrance. John 14. How industrious then should we all be in frequent search of the scriptures? Are they not the paradise of God, wherein grows the tree of life and the leaves are good to heal the nations? Are not scriptures as that pool whereunto God hath promised a virtual power, wherein we, we may wash and be clean? Scriptures are that golden mine where we may dig riches that may make us rich to God, that enrich us to life eternal. So zealous was Luther to have the scriptures read that he professed that if he thought that the reading of his books would hinder the reading of the scriptures, he would burn them all before he died. But thus much of these things briefly. The scripture itself, alleged being that which I intend principally by God's help to insist upon. And in this scripture, alleged in the text, three particulars offer themselves. One, the grace, zeal. Two, the object, whereabout it was conversant, God's house. Three, the degree wherein it seized upon David and Christ. They were eaten up with it. First then, for the grace itself. What is zeal? It is a holy ardor kindled by the Holy Spirit of God in the affections, improving a man to the utmost for God's glory and the church's good. It is not so much any one affection as the intended degree of all. Affections are the motions of the will as carried out to the prosecution of good or avoiding of evil. They are, as the philosopher speaks, exitus anime, the outgoings of the soul. What the wheels are to the cart, the sinews to the body, wings to the bird, the wind to the sails spread, such are the affections to the soul. Implanted by God to carry it hither and thither as the objects do more or less affect. Man lies like a log, the soul moves not, but the, as the affections stir. For their order, they are so placed in the soul as that they are subservient one to another, the irascible to the concupiscible. When the desiring faculties flag, grow remiss by intervenient impediments, then comes the irascible faculties as taking away the impediments. And is not this that which is properly called anger? The second thing is the object, God's house. The house of God under the law was all the external pledges of God's presence, the altars, temple, tabernacle, ark, etc. The house of God under the gospel is, as the people of God elsewhere, so the ordinances of God here. The third thing is the degree. Hath eaten me up a metaphor taken from men that received nourishment and the meat after its several concoctions is assimilated into the nature of them that receive it. Zeal doth totally surprise us in what concerns God. We so mind the things of God as if we minded nothing else. 
What was said of Peter, that he was a man made of all fire, and of St. Paul in respect of his sufferings, that he was a spark of fire burning in the middle of the sea. That may be much more said of Christ when he was upon the work of church reformation. The text thus opened, this proposition offers itself. The church reformation doth call for utmost zeal. Our love to promote that work which uh, must be such as many waters cannot quench. Our desires must be enlarged as those which break through all impediments. Admit of no denial. Give me my request or I die. Our hope must be more longing. Our endeavors full of activity. Our hatred of the opposites more perfect. Our anger in removing the hindrances more violent. These stirrings of the spirit expel lukewarmness. Induced zeal. Zeal sets on work the whole tide of our affections. All my springs are in thee. In promoting the good of God's church, David had a springtide of his affections. They all ran in that channel. To what dangers, hazards, and censures did Christ here in the exercise of his zeal expose himself in the case of church reformation? David's zeal for the, for the settling of the ark, how did it make him deny himself in his most necessary refreshings? I will not go into my house, etc. His house was no house. His bed, no bed. His rest, no rest. So, in his worldly credit, I will yet, for my God's sake, be more vile. So, in those innumerable heaps of gold and silver, which, out of his earnest zeal, he had prepared and set apart for the building of the temple. Nehemiah, that emblem of reformers, what a, a measure of zeal did he discover in leaving all his court preferments, putting himself in his own person upon a hazardful and tedious journey in the encounters and oppositions, both open and secret, he met with all. In his expensefulness, and that to prodigality as it may seem, for the common cause. In his unwearied persisting in the work until it was accomplished. How iron-like was the spirit of Elias? How did he, out of a spirit of zeal against the idolatry of Baal, set his face against Ahab, Jezebel, and all the priests of Baal? How was he driven to fly for his life? Some geographers compute his journey at many hundreds of miles. <clears throat> How great were the exigences that he was put onto, even near a famishment, to a weariness of his life. John the Baptist, what an invincible spirit he was. His encounter with a generation of vipers is bold and daring, for it cost him his life. Reproof of Herod for his Herodias. His turning of mountains into valleys, his making of rough ways plain, do all, do all witness. The want of zeal in the people in Jehoshaphat's time, they having not prepared their hearts to seek the God of their fathers, kept up the high places, but in Hezekiah's time the zeal of the people plucked them down. The work was done suddenly, for the people were ready. Of such moment it is that where church reformation is in hand, a spirit of zeal should run in the veins of the reformers. 
No such unbeseeming evil as when the cause of God lies at stake for men to be cold, lukewarm neuters, warping sometimes one way, sometimes another. In the further prosecution of this truth, three particulars do present themselves. One, convincing reasons must be rendered. Why zeal must be present in church reformation. Two, what influence zeal ought to have in church reformers. Three, how zeal must be qualified that it may be kept within its bounds. Zeal not confined is a wildfire. For the first of these, three reasons do offer themselves as arising from the nature of the work in respect of, first, its excellency, second, its difficulty, third, the destructive nature of church evils, if not reformed. The excellency of the work, I argue, three ways. First, that the work of church reformation is one of God's special favors, whereby the Lord would endear his church to him. When after the church's sad sufferings, he would do his people a special favor, he tells them that he will purge away all her dross and take away all her tin. So when the Lord would express himself in the greatest declarations of his love to his church, O thou afflicted and tossed with tempest, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, thy foundations with sapphires, etc. God will set up his ordinances in a more glorious way. All thy children shall be taught of the Lord. Accordingly, in this latter age of the world, what is the great work for which the church blesses God with the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb? Is it not the victory over the beast, his name, Mark, etc.? All done by church reformation. Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Second, the excellency of the work is argued jointly from the, the relations betwixt God and his church and the offices or the office which reformers do. The church is God's garden, which being planted with all variety of flowers is apt to be overgrown with weeds that not only mar the beauty of it, but eat out the good herbs. Reformers, their work is to weed the Lord his garden. Throw out all those noisome herbs which would have spoiled all the good ones. The church is the Lord's orchard, wherein trees of all kinds, both for fruit and medicine, grow up upon the banks thereof. The master of that orchard is impatient of any such trees that cumber the ground and after many years bear no fruit. Reformers, their work is to root out the plants that God never planted. The church is God's house where he delights to dwell. Reformers are to cast out all the dirt, dross, and garbage that was odious and irksome to the master of the house. They sweep down all the cobwebs wherein the spiders did build. The church is God's spouse in whose beauty his soul delights. That she should be deformed with strange attire, ornaments borrowed from notorious strumpets, the Lord cannot endure. Reformers, they strip her of all her harlotry attire, take off all her Jezebel-like paintings, and render her to Christ in her native simplicity. The church is the Lord's vineyard, which he keeps and waters every moment. Reformers, their work is to take the foxes that destroy the vines. How welcome should the fear 
of such be? And how should the precious nature of the work in relation to God draw out all our strength? Three, that the, uh, the excellency of the work may be yet further evidenced. Consider it in the objects whereabout it is conversant. That is, either things or persons. Things are doctrine, worship, and government. Doctrine is a ray or beam of supernatural truth issued out from God as a special favor to his people, tending to inform them in right notions and apprehensions concerning God, Christ, our souls, and the whole way of salvation. This is called the word of life, the wholesome word, the word of salvation. How useful is this word, since men do as surely perish by damnable heresies as by moral vices. Doctrine is as the waters of the sanctuary. How great a sin to puddle or poison these. Was it not capital among the Romans to poison the common springs? How noisome was that plague to the Egyptians to have all their waters whereof they should drink turned into blood? Was it not much more, as the soul is more excellent than the body, pestilential to have all the main articles of our religion, not that of justification accepted, to be all or the most desperately corrupted, as may be seen in the minister's remonstrance exhibited together with their petition for reformation? The second particular, whereabout reformation is conversant, is worship, whereby God and we have communion one with another. We do in a holy manner trade with God and he with us. This is as Jacob's ladder. The, the angels of God ascend and descend by it. Our prayers ascend. God's blessings descend. The ordinances are those golden pipes by which the golden oil empties itself into the hearts of God's people. They are the church's breasts from whence the, her children suck nourishment. They are the church's barn and her winepress. They are on Christ's part the kisses of his mouth. The mutual embraces betwixt God and the Christian soul. Dry up all the breasts in such a city as this. How great will the cry of the infants be? This mischief by the putting down of preaching and strange innovations brought and urged upon us in our most solemn worship had in a great part seized upon us and will yet certainly prevail if the, refer if the reformers do not seasonably and strongly oppose. The third particular is church discipline or government. All societies, all societies and so the church is upheld by ruling and being ruled. This, among other benefits, is it will yield that it will preserve the honor of God's censures and ordinances. That great censure of excommunication, which is no less than the delivery up of a man to Satan, and next to the day of judgment, it is judicium maximi tremendum. It shall no longer lackey up and down for duties and fees as it hath done amongst us, and as it did in the darkest times of popery, as Gerson complains, this, once established, will direct us to put a difference betwixt the holy and the profane, the clean and the unclean. For want whereof, the Lord challenges the priests. 
Hath not this been, and is it not yet in a great part remaining upon us, as one of our land-destroying sins, the promiscuous thrusting in of scandalous and ignorant persons upon the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, to the horrible profaning of the same, and no power that would hitherto be allowed as legal. No, not for making stay of such. Misunderstand me not. I mean not that men should be cut short of that latitude which the laws of Christ allow. Only let that hedge and mound of discipline be erected, whereby holy things may not be indifferently administered, as well to men egregiously profane, and that after conviction as to the Lord his holy ones. Thus of things, now of persons, these be all, as all church officers, whereof a ground in Scripture, so more especially the ministers of the word, the dispensers of holy things. These, if good, are the best of men, as who are one of a thousand, when others at the utmost but one of four or five hundred. To these, God hath committed the ministry of reconciliation, even of God with men. These the Lord hath betrusted with the power of opening and shutting heaven when the like commission is not given to to the angels themselves. For to which of the angels did God ever say, Whatsoever ye bind on earth is bound in heaven? These worthily styled saviors and of such as these reformers hold out a hope. All their endeavors are and ought to be that The churches, those who have sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, may be furnished with bright, shining lights. Now as these who attend at the altar, if good, the best, so if evil, the worst. For as it is among the mariners who see the wonders of the Lord in the deep, they are either the best or worst of men. The best, if if what they see works for the best, or the worst, if not bettered. So we ministers whom God acquaints with the depths of Scripture come off from that privilege either as most profane or most holy. If salt hath lost its savor, what is it good for but to be cast to the dunghill? What hope of salvation for such where remedies are turned into loathing and poison as Gerson and Hence is that of Chrysostom, whoever saw a clergyman easily brought to repentance. And does not that work which will thus reserve all honor to God's ordinances keep them from the profane ones? Furnish the church with faithful watchmen and rid us of such burdens as are of all other most insufferable require our most utmost zeal. The second particular evincing the necessity of zeal is the difficulty of the work in respect of the mountainous oppositions. Reformers shall and must encounter with as first not only a large spread, but also a unanimous combination of the church's enemies. Gebal, Ammon, and Amalek, the Philistines, and them that dwell at Tyre, and they have consulted together with one consent. Pope, Spaniard, French, 
and the whole generation of the English Jesuits, papists and prelatical faction and libertines, all looking upon the work of reformation not only as hindering their design, their good work in hand as they call it, but undermining their kingdom. How industriously vigilant are they in laying out themselves, their heads and hands and purses. They leave no stone unremoved that may hinder our work or promote their own. Doth not all this challenge our utmost zeal? Secondly, in respect of the prevailing nature, the close adhering of churchmen's, as they are called, sins, with whom reformers must contest. These are sensuality, ambition, and idleness. It was the monks' bellies and the cardinals' caps, which, as Erasmus observed, did create Luther his greatest trouble. Sensuality is a sin wherever it seizes of the greatest adherence. As the school speaks, I will, uh, though smitten, saith the drunkard, seek it yet again. And of sensual sins it is said, they return not again. The philosopher could say, the intemperate man is seldom a penitent man. The guise of such churchmen in an old writer deciphers, an old writer deciphers as those which did turn their scriber to bibber and their codices into chalices. Such the prophet describes, come, say they, and we will fill ourselves with wine, and tomorrow shall be as today. Such belly gods as these, another says of them, no dainties suffice them as, as if to be judged rather by their complexion than their profession. Again, such evil beasts and slow bellies, not only the ancient councils and synods, but even Julian himself shall rise up in judgment. He, perceiving that the Christian faith did grow and increase by the sobriety and abstemiousness of their ministers, gave command to his arch Flamen Arsatus, that his priests should not drink in a tavern. If any should do so, he should be removed from his priest's dignity. And for that horse-leech humor of ambition, which hath so eaten up the vitals of our clergy masters, may we not see a picture of them in Balaam, who, that he might have been capable of Balak's great preferments, how doth he wind and turn himself every way that he might curse God's people? Numbers 22. How lively doth Bernard decipher them? Learned and unlearned run, as if men were to live without all care when they came to a charge. The same author tartly derides them when he speaks on this manner. Hasten to multiply prebends from thence, fly to an archdeaconry, at length climb up to a bishopric, not satisfied with that, because this is the way to heaven. Whether dost thou post, O miserable man, so a forenamed author who lived in the twelfth century, by right and wrong, unhappy men who run to the pastoral chair and observe not, that it is to them a chair of pestilence. As for the idleness of men in the ministry, may we not justly take up the complaint of the prophet? They have eaten the fat, clothed themselves with the wool, 
that they have not fed the Lord his flock. May we not say, as sometime a canon of Christ Church in the beginning of Queen Elizabeth, her reign, when men were backward in preaching, Oh, good pulpit, how hast thou offended the canons of Christ Church? If thou wert an ambling uh, palfrey, they would ride on thee. If a table well furnished, they would feed on thee. If a bed of down, they would sleep on thee. If a goodly garment, they would wear thee. Alas, good pulpit, what hast thou done that none of them will preach in thee? Might we not well compare sundry of our clergymen to Lepidus in the orator, who when he lay tumbling in the green grass cried out, I would this were to labor. This is the humor of many of them, who when they do swagger, hunt or haunt taverns, play the epicures, I would this were to feed the Lord his flock. Had not those need be men made all of zeal that shall encounter with men on whom not only these vices have deeply seized, but they are armed with wit and parts to plead for themselves? The third particular that puts a difficulty upon the work of this present reformation above former, heretofore reformers have had to deal with the gross thick cloud of popery the dunsery of, of the monks and friars, with such palpable corruptions as many of them were discernible by a common light. But now, the work lies with men, many of whom retain the same fundamentals with us, are come out of Babylon in respect of the foggy part of it, yet retain many of the dregs of it, which may in time prove pernicious and help to carry us back again to Egypt. These, many of them, are learned Gamaliels, men renowned for worth and parts, whom for my own part I love and honor, but yet in such things where God hath hidden from them what he hath revealed to others. It is possible that the Lord hath revealed greater things to them, given them clearer light in many of the great greatest mysteries of religion, here is the zeal of reformers, that they refuse to swallow anything that is unsound because it is offered as countenanced with authority of men famous for their learning and esteem in the churches. Zeal knows no respect of persons in doing her work. The fourth particular that makes the work difficult is Demetrius and his whole train that follow him. who cry out, Sirs, you know by, that by this craft we have gotten our wealth. I mean our chancellors, commissaries, officials, registers, proctors, and these. What mighty piles of wealth, what large and rich estates have they heaped together? These have been as those cankerworms and caterpillars who have eaten up almost all the green things of the land. They have formerly picked our purses, scratched our faces, vexed our spirits, hurried us from court to court, and all this have been practiced under a pretense of reformation. But what have they indeed done by all their specious visitations? Have they been any other to us than like the juggler's feast who on a time invited his friends to a solemn banquet whereunto they came in great expectation to have their bellies filled, a table was richly furnished with all variety of foods, they all set about it, but when they put forth their hands they brought back nothing but air. 
rose and departed as hungry as they came. So hath it been with us in our most solemn visitations. Or may we, as Gerson did sometimes, compare the visitors of this kind to the cat, which being by the good housewife put in the dairy house to save the cheese from the mice and rats, doth more harm than they all. Yea, where the greatest uh, pretense of good was held out, what we what have all our visitors and reformers done more than the Pope's cardinals, whom he sent out in Luther's time to blind the world with a pretense of reformation. As they so ours may well be compared to the fox's tail which raises the dust but carries none away. The fifth difficulty is a potent army of non-residents whose glory hath been a, a polygamy of benefices. An evil which we may well wonder at, the gospel light being so far advanced as it is, learned and modest men should not be ashamed of it. When as the most learned divines in the Council of Trent did generally protest against it, as appears by their several tractates, I might urge these men with a variety of scriptures, with arguments of diverse kinds, but I refer the reader to Carranza, his tractate, De Non Residentia, who speaks so fully in this argument as if his book were translated into English, he would be deemed a Puritan that wrote it. I will only use one argument, which I thus propound. Every command of a duty does necessarily imply all the necessary ways and means whereby the duty is to be effected. Else the Lord should contradict himself. If he should command a duty and dispense with that without which it cannot be performed. But residence in or near the place where the duty is to be done is evident by the light of nature. Whoever made question whether the porter to whom the care of opening and shutting the door is committed should reside at the door or whether he that governs the ship should sit at the helm, or whether watchmen are not to attend upon the tower over which they are set as watchmen. This is Bellarmine in his own argument, which upon occasion he makes use of. And whereas men are apt to plead the discharge of their duty ordinarily by another, the unlawfulness thereof I thus evince. First, for that the Lord himself quarrels not only with such deputies as were uncircumcised in heart, for that is but an aggravation, but with deputies as deputies. You have set others to take charge of my sanctuary and have not yourselves kept the charge of my holy things. Ezekiel 44. So do our non-residents lay the ark as Uzzah and his fellows did upon the cart when they should have carried it upon their shoulders. Second, if deputies would ordinarily serve the turn, then why does the apostle cry out, who is sufficient for these things? Third, such as are chosen to the work of the, of the ministry are chosen for their special gifts, not for that they can choose others. For no man to whom a trust with respect to his fidelity is committed may devolve his trust to another unless it be so expressed in his grant a ruled case among the civilians, but no such liberty granted by Christ. Five, why should Christ admit of that 
in those to whom he commands the care of souls, that no master of a family will admit in any of his servants, that when he hath hired them at such a rate to do his work, they shall ordinarily serve him by those whom they hire at a lower rate. May it not make non-residents blush. If they have so much modesty, as my hope is some have, if they look upon it, first in the original of it, secondly in the indirect shifts whereby it was upheld in the Council of Trent, thirdly in the expressions concerning it, as they have been uttered by friars, cardinals, and popes themselves. For the original of it, among many other grounds not now to be insisted upon, was it not at first brought in to maintain the Pope, his magnificence, who, having gotten large territories to himself when he would advance himself above all the Western monarchs, saw it necessary that he might not be as an owl among the birds to make great his cardinals by a worldly pomp. This, that he might effect, he challenges to himself as the privilege of Peter, the collation of all ecclesiastical dignities and to the end he might enrich his cardinals and make them princes' fellows. He gave dispensations to several men to hold ducenta, tricenta, quadrinta, etc. This made a great accession to his greatness when those of his conclave were able to maintain such a state. And secondly, for the carriage of the cause of the Council of Trent, we know no, we must that the several popes who lived in the time of the council gave it in special charge to their legates that among other things to be reformed in the church, in the court of Rome, they should be sure that non-residents would suffer no damage. And accordingly, when that business came in question, the legates found out a diversion at least six several times. And in the issue, when the Spanish divines did press the cause so far as it could not be avoided, but canon must be made against it, the Pope creates 40 titular bishops, sends them to the council, and by that means was the cause carried, so that though a canon was made against it, yet with such provisos as makes it to be of no effect. And thirdly, for the expressions of the Popish party, one saith, since Christ's ascension, no greater evil in the church than plurality of benefices. Another saith that, but it is, but that it is supposed they have the church's absolution as their death, they ought not to have the benefit of Christian burial. Another calls the distinction of residents and non-residents a distinction never enough to be detested. Another says that anciently men were admonished to be resident, but it never came under dispute. One of the former counts the justification of this evil to be a choking of the light of nature, a shutting of our eyes. We read of two popes, Clement V and Gregory XI, who being visited by the hand of God, did, out of the sense of their sin, make void all their dispensations of non, for non-residents. What a measure of zeal is required to reform them whom all this shames not. The sixth difficulty that will exercise a reformer's zeal is the multitude adhering to their old customs, idolizing their formalities. We may see the genius of the people in regard, in this regard, in those in Jeremiah 44, 
What thou hast spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not do, but we will do so and so. In Micah, who when the, the Danites had taken away his idols, he makes after them with hue and cry, they demanding what ails the man, he makes this reply. Have you taken away my gods? And do you ask me what I ail? You see the prevalency of old customs in the people called Hyrcani, who, when their king went about to alter a heathenish custom of casting their dead to mastives instead of burial, he had liked to have lost both his life and crown. This impatience of the people to have anything altered, the papists will shame us, for who in the times of Paulus Tertius and Pius Quintus, though they profess infallibility in their way, yet have they yielded to have their breviates twice changed. And thus you have the second reason why zeal is of great use. A third convincing reason of the necessity of zeal is the destructive nature of those evils, which, if reformation remove not, will be the ruin of kingdoms. As the wickedness of ministers, when the Lord calls for all the beasts of the field to devour and spoil Jerusalem, the forerunner thereof was the wickedness and idleness of the priests. Doth not wickedness go from them into all the land? Thy watchmen are blind. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. They are greedy dogs. They all look to their own. Everyone is for his gain from his quarter. So when Jeremiah mentions the cause of Jerusalem's destruction, he inserts this. Thy prophets have looked out for thee vain and foolish things. They have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, etc. So in the 10th century, which was most barren of all good writers and fruitful in all manner of wickedness, wherein the Pope got up on horseback, what saith a good writer of the clergy of that time? What do we ministers who are so much the more inferior to others in holiness of life as we are more eloquent in words, who stirring up others fall asleep ourselves, holding out light to others are so much the more darkened in ourselves. So when did anti-Christianism and Mohammedism grow to their full maturity? Anno Domini 1300. Was it not then when the prelates became idle shepherds, when the pastors became wolves, and the angels of the church's devils? Was not the, the wickedness of the priests a principal inlet of the Saxons to expel the Britons out of this land? Brittany, saith a good author, hath priests, but foolish ones. They understand not. Pastors, as they are called, but indeed wolves, ready to stay to slay the souls of the people, not seeking the good of the people, but the fullness of their own bellies, etc., so, for matter of doctrine, when the Saxons invaded this land, the Pelagian heresy had, with a filthy contagion, defiled the Britons' faith. Should not zeal bestir itself when such evils as these overspread a state? <clears throat> this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, 
in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.